0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So nice to see all of you here. It's such a warm uh, group today, practicing together so wholeheartedly. Um, I was thinking about uh, we arrive at a one day sitting like this, maybe with all kinds of uh, um, Plans and thoughts in our minds, and the process of sitting and meditation lets that all kind of go <laughs> away. So we stop trying to hold all, hold everything. Try stop trying to um, drive the drive our lives. Um, so. I was thinking about each time I uh, I'm a, I teach English, I teach high school, and um, each time I have a group of students who are working on a paper um, of any substance, I, I often find that they want to stuff as much into the paper as they can get uh, within the word limit. <laughs> um, so they ask me to give them a structure and I say, okay, for every... Every example, every quotation, just limit yourself to two points of analysis. And then I see the papers and they have many more <laughs> than two. Um, and uh, just kind of weighed down with these laborious points of of analysis so that you can't really see what they want to say because they're so busy trying to make sure that part's done. So. When I think of why they do that, I know it's my fault and and all the other teachers probably that they've had, because no matter what they do, however well they do, we're always saying yes, but a little more. <laughs> you know, we're always saying yes, but you could also have. Uh, so um, this happens so often that the student start starts to think that more is better. Uh, and I also have this problem. I um, think about this. My example for this is our ceremonies that we do here. We'll often have a rehearsal. We'll get different roles that we're going to play in the, um, in the ceremony. And, um, you know, we're all noting down what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to come in with the bell or whatever. And I always find that I um, get so uh, concerned about my part. <laughs> um, I, f- I find myself kind of stalking <laughs> Vicki and Roy's. <laughs> like, what, when was I supposed to say it? Where am I supposed to go um, before the ceremony? And then when we, when the ceremony starts and we're all together, we are all together. And my, my part just flows with every other part. So um, we, we, our separate concerns are no longer a thing. They, they might be a thing, but um, they don't have to be. <laughs> so I want to talk to you this morning about the mind of no abode. We hear this phrase in our study of the Vimalakirti Sutra. And it suggests that anything we try to hold on to, anything we feel we need to rely on uh, can be a hindrance in our ability to to meet the suchness of reality and to meet it afresh. There are many reasons that we may (laughs) want to gather our tools and our props, get everything prepared for meeting the contingencies of life. And it's understandable why we would want to study up on something that is about to happen. And uh, I, I find myself in, in Zazen sometimes actually planning conversations, you know, pre-writing an email that I need to send. And I will, another voice in my head will say, it's okay, you can do it. You can do it then. You don't need to do it ahead of time. <clears throat> um, so this is something that maybe we all do. Um, so there comes a time though, when we need to stand up and with the courage of our faith (laughs) and meet what comes. And I think that's what our practice teaches us to, to, to be upright and meet what comes. So I'm going to tell you two stories about this mind of no abode. The first is the story of Ananda. And the second is the story of Chiono. So in the Mumon Khan, which is the gateless gate or the gateless barrier, there's a case that um, tells the story of Ananda that I always find very moving. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for many years. And um, we we often, all all of us probably have a special place in our heart for Ananda, for um taking up for the women, um, early on when the women wanted to join the Sangha and it went so much against the culture of ancient India. And, um, he kept coming back again and again, asking the Buddha, can't we just let them (laughs) ordain? (laughs) Um, so that's one wonderful thing about Ananda. So many things I really love about Ananda. Um, So there are many ways to serve the Dharma, from taking care of monastic practice to living in the secular world, uh, taking care of the Dharma. And in his practice, Ananda stayed and attended uh, the details of the Buddha's needs. I feel like I'm going to move this down a little bit because it's making too many noises. See if that helps. Um, So he was the uh, he was the attendant for the Buddha. Um, he was always with the teacher, uh, supporting him, remembering what he said. That's one of the things that we say about Ananda. Um, and um, he, he, the this remembering part of his uh, duties was one of his great gifts. He was supposed to have had this enormous memory so that he's the one who remembered the story, all the words that the Buddha said, all his life, all his teaching life. And that was before words were written down. So each of the sutras begins, thus have I heard, and those are Ananda's words. He's the one saying that. So this is um, Ananda recalling the words of the Buddha so that they could be passed down passed down generation by generation. People memorized them and passed them down. And so they were written down. Um, Ananda would have been there to see all those moments when the Buddha helped people wake up to the reality of their lives, freeing them from the hindrances of wrong views. I think about the beginning of that time together. Uh, Ananda was the Buddha's first cousin. So, they would have known each other from growing up, uh, but it was only in the second year of Shakyamuni's monastic path that Ananda himself ordained. And then it was 25 years later that he became the Buddha's attendant, uh, and then for the rest of the Buddha's life. Uh, So, the family connection would have been so greatly deepened by that long service He must have even sewn the Buddha's robes, I imagine. Um, He would have received requests for interviews uh, from seekers. He would have acted as a go-between, carrying messages, so many different roles, taking care of the Buddha. Um, So the story goes that of all the other advanced students of the Buddha, Ananda alone had not had an awakening experience all those years Uh, By the time that the Buddha passed into Pari Nirvana, um, how he must have grieved when the Buddha passed, he would have felt this great loss of the Buddha's physical presence. Um, It must have been earth shattering for him. And then on top of it all, he had spent all those years so busy, um, being the repository of all the teachings, taking care of things, serving the Buddha and the Sangha in all these big and small ways, that he didn't have time or the focus to think about his own awakening. It's just a story that I'm imagining. So I imagine he must have wondered about it all over all those years, witnessing as he did all the Buddha's own uh, way of living in enlightenment alongside the powerful practice of these, all these monastic followers of the Buddha. And the story has it though, that all the way up to the meeting of the first council, uh, when they would be hearing Ananda's recounting of all these, all this uh, wisdom from the Buddha, he had not experienced this awakening himself. So in the story the big conference to gather the Buddha's teachings and ensure that they stayed in the collective memory was only to be attended by people who had awakened. And so that made it a little awkward because he was the one who was going to tell them the stories and he couldn't come. Uh, So as the story tells it, he sat for days and nights. He was really intent, a lot of pressure from people and from himself Seeking awakening. And one of those nights, um, Ananda went to Mahakashapa, who was the Buddha's successor, and he went to him with his doubts, and he said, The world-honored one gave you the golden robe. Did he give you anything else? Um, so Mahakashapa was the one, as I said, who had received the Dharma from. The, the Buddha, he was the one who carried on for Shakyamuni in the troubled time when everyone must have been wondering if the faith would continue without a great leader. And Ananda would have known that the ceremony of Dharma transmission involved the passing on of the great robe of liberation um, to the disciple. And he might have even been the one to sew that. Um, his question shows that he wasn't sure about what all that great repository of knowledge meant in the end. So it's it is curious that he had that doubt um, as he expressed it privately to Mahakashapa, asking him if there was some special thing that the Buddha gave him beyond the robe that enabled Mahakashapa to awaken. And the reason it's such an odd question is that Ananda certainly would have heard the Buddha say in many different ways, be a lamp unto yourself. (coughs) In a fuller expression of the teaching, the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seeking no external refuge. With the Dharma as your island, the Dharma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. So that means you're not getting it from somebody else. <laughs> it's inside. I mean, it's, it's your own experience. So this idea that we're a lamp unto ourselves connects with our nature as sentient beings already carrying the Buddha Dharma in our being. While we need one another as a spiritual community, transmission does not mean that the teacher gives the student a thing that she didn't already have. There's another sutra called the Kalama Sutta, in which the Buddha enjoined seekers to find out for themselves. And he expressed it from two different angles. I'm going to read it. And it is a funny, when you hear the ancient language, it feels kind of funny. There's a lot of repetition that it's an oral language. And so repetition is very important in oral languages. You probably know that. So um, first he described ways... We know what is not good for us. And then he described ways that we know what's good for us. So he says, so, so as I said, kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by thought. This contemplative is our teacher, When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. Thus was it said, and in reference to this was it said. So that's the part where he's saying, how you know what is unskillful, what's unwholesome. And now he says, what, how you know what's good, what's, what's skillful and wholesome. He says, now Kalamas don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, through pondering views, by probability or by thought. This contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to, the, to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So, you know what's good and what's not good. <laughs> um, so, of course, Ananda would have heard this teaching <laughs> he would have known for himself that essentially it was all on him to awaken. What was he holding on to? Why was he still asking Mahakashapa if there might have been some extra code word or something that the Buddha gave him that the Ananda, with all his perspicacity, missed? What made Ananda think he needed to seek outside of himself? So it must have been hard on him to go to Mahakashapa. I, I think it must have been hard for him to admit this, <laughs> this doubt, um, even though I really think he must have been a person with the gift of humility, that um, even so, he's somebody who everyone would have come to to ask what the Buddha said and what he might have meant by this or that, Um it might have been hard to realize that there's this doubt in the middle of all that knowledge. So it must have been hard. I think if it was hard for him, maybe he entered Mahakashapa's presence with some deal of tension that that night. So the the koan is quite sparse in details, as koans tend to be. Um, it says it gives as Mahakashapa's response to Ananda's question. Just a sharp call of Ananda's name. He says, Ananda. And calling out Ananda's name is itself a way of waking Ananda up to his own nature. Ananda answers with a resounding yes. Um, so I wonder, was that the moment when he woke up? <laughs> so... In the old Indian temples, they would have a flagpole outside. And when a teacher was to expound the Dharma, or when a a teacher was to ascend the seat to engage in uh, Dharma discussion with the monks, the monks would raise the flag. And then people in the surrounding area and the monks who were outside working, I guess, would know to come inside for the talk. Um so when Mahakashapa heard Ananda's powerful yes, he replied, knock down the flagpole at the gate. So he didn't just say take down the flag. <laughs> he said, knock down the flagpole. Um, the support on which the Dharma seems to rest. And he said, knock down the flagpole at the gate. Ananda had pivoted in his understanding. He had been holding himself back by grasping onto the support of his sense of himself as the one who needed to hold it all together. And now he passed through the gate. Uh, He experienced the mind of no abode. So I wanna add another story now to Ananda's and that's the story of Chiono. She was also called Mugai Nyodai and she was one of the first Japanese women to receive Dharma transmission. So she was apparently from a high ranking family that when she went to her family to ask if she could join a monastic community, they refused to support her, and apparently she decided just to do it anyway, so she had no support at all, and therefore had to live her life as a servant in the convent. She saw the monast- monastics practicing zazen every day and developed this aspiration to enter the way. As as she went about her duties every day, she would have served the, these monastic women practicing Zazen, and she would go back to her room and imitate them by sitting facing the wall after all her many duties of the day. She felt that she wasn't getting anywhere with this practice, so she went to a young monk and asked her to teach her the practice of Zazen. And this monk scolded her and said, your practice is simply to serve the monks in this temple as well as possible without giving any thought to physical hardships or uttering a word of complaint this is your zazen <laughs> that's kind of harsh <laughs> so while chiono tried to follow this advice she still had this great desire to engage in zen practice more deeply and one night when they as the story goes when the moon was waning She went over to the meditation hall and peeked inside and she saw people of all sorts inside meditating, sitting in meditation, not just the monks of the convent, but also all these the lay people from around the area of all ages. And she was very impressed with this wholehearted practice that all these lay people who possess such profound aspiration as to come to the convent and sit zazen, with the monks, even when they were leading busy, secular lives. Finally, she got up the nerve to ask another one of the monks of the convent about how she might practice. And she approached this elderly monk and she said, I must work all the time. If I set an intention, is it possible I too might attain the way of the Buddha, even though I have no skills? And this monk had a different response. This monk answered her and said, this is wonderful, my dear. In Buddhism, there are no distinctions between a man and a woman, between a lay person and a renunciant. Also, there is no separation between noble and humble, between old and young. There is only this. Each person must hold fast to the desire to awaken and cultivate a heart of great compassion. So she taught her and she she over probably over weeks, she gave her more instruction. She said people are complete as they are. If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there is no Buddha and no sentient being. There is only one complete nature. If you want to know your true nature, you need to turn toward the source of your delusive thoughts. This is called zazen. So. Shiono um, devoted herself to this, to, to this teaching. And um, she learned that Zazen means to seek the Buddha in your own heart. She added that the old Zen teachers say the teachings of the sutras are like a finger pointing to the moon. The words of the teachers are like a key that opens a gate. If one looks directly at the moon, there is no need for a finger. If the gate has been opened, there is no use for a key. Great learning and vast knowledge are only impediments to entering the gate of the Dharma. It, they make people cling to philosophizing and words. If you know your own mind, what teachings about scriptures do you need? In entering the way, you must. we must rely on our bodies alone. So, her instructions enabled Chiono to realize that when random thoughts occurred in her mind, she should just let them exhaust themselves, making no effort to try to stop her thoughts. But Chiono had some doubts. She asked, can I point to my lowly self and say that I have Buddha nature? Or am I deluding myself? The monk replied, people are complete as they are. Each one is perfected. This monk also guided Shiona to practice all throughout her days, not just in seated meditation. She told her, no matter what we do as we go about our daily life, we should not observe things, but rather turn toward the source of our perceptions and unceasingly try to fathom it. So the monks of the convent noticed a change in Chiono as she was practicing so intently. Uh, They all began to talk saying that realization was near at hand. Uh, The elderly priest who had advised Chiono one night went to Chiono's room and saw that she sat facing the wall and she could see from Chiono's posture that she was deeply settled in this practice She noted that Shiona was displaying what she called the grit of an adept, feeling an urgency of purpose. So after months of wholehearted practice, Shiona went out on a full moon night to draw some water from the well. The bottom of her old bucket held together by bamboo strips suddenly gave away. And the reflection of the moon vanished with the water. When she saw this, she attained great realization. And here's her enlightenment poem. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. Like Ananda, Shiono was holding onto something that prevented her from seeing the bright jewel of buddha nature inside her. And like Ananda she had this deep aspiration that drove her drove her to practice with grit. And also like Ananda she looked to the sangha to find her way. In her case she had two teachers. We might think the first monk who told her just to get busy. <laughs> Just do her work was not very helpful. But she gave Chiono a push also to find her place where she was in her life as a servant. Um, Her second teacher pointed to the key that linked Zazen to her life as a servant. So Ananda became the second Indian Dharma holder, and Chiono went on to become a distinguished Zen master founding several convents in Kyoto and um, uh, including one that was the that was the women uh, a leading women's Zen monastery in Japan's medieval period. So I started this these stories with my students trying to cram more and more analysis into their papers to make sure they hit the mark with at least some of it. And with my own tendency to want to write down all the details of a ceremony so I could get it right. So I invite all of us to look deeply into what's holding us back. Let's practice with the true grit of an adept. Let's walk through the gate.